Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Ho, 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 peoples, and welcome back to another episode of Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the holly jolly Ryan Siebold, and with me today is the man who Santa Claus himself has banned for life from celebrating the holidays. Everyone leave some milk and cookies out for Mr. Jason Peters! What's up, Ryan? How's it going, my friend? It's going pretty good, buddy. How you been? <sighs> man, I was doing fine, and then the whole thing with St. Nick went down, and it's just, man, I'm telling you, like, I've been really bummed out about it, because it was a total misunderstanding, you know, like... Yeah, I, it's got to be a hard time of year for you. Yeah, it really is, man, because you know what? Here's the thing, so, like, I love Christmas, okay? And I really wanted to show my appreciation to the Claus family as a whole. So my wife is actually a really good knitter and I had her knit a sweater for Mr. and Mrs. Claus. So, you know, on the way over there, I was bringing, I, you know, I had it like strapped to my back. It had caught on some trees, right? Some shrubbery. It was kind of torn up a little bit, the sweater for Mrs. Claus that is. So when I got there, I presented it to him, asked her to put it on. And let's just say that it had kind of a Barbarella thing going on, right? It was a little ragged and it was like, it was actually super sexy, right? But I wouldn't dare that say that in front of Mr. Claus. Anyways, he comes out, he sees the two of us, he sees her, like, stripping down. It was a complete misunderstanding. He thought that I was trying oh, to hit on his no. wife. And, and, yeah. and again, dude, I mean, it's like, I mean, first of all, look, no disrespect, but she's, like, 463 years old. And, and that's just not my, my, not my bag, <laughs> firstly, right? Like, second of all, I would never do anything to disrespect Mr. Claus. That man has been hooking me up since I was, like, a little baby with some cool shit on the reg every year. I would dare disrespect someone like that but uh yeah so now i'm on his shit list and here's the thing it's a literal shit list okay people think that you get coal <laughs> in your stocking negative every year huge mound of fecal matter in my stocking oh wow is it reindeer shit or elf shit it's got to be one of the two <laughs> well it has sparkles in it so it, but elf I don't know shit. that I was going to say, cause I don't know that that That's narrows elf it down shit all the way. Oh yeah. I'm not, I'll admit I'm not hugely learned on the differences between reindeer shit and elf shit, but, uh, yeah, man, it just sucks, dude. Like I love that guy. I love the presents. Now I just get you shit got caught, every year. Uh, yeah. You got caught unwrapping the wrong gift, buddy. Trying to show off the old North pole. <laughs> and here's the thing, dude. Like I did, I, I thought it was cool. Right. Because it's so silly me. I'm the only person apparently that didn't realize that I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus was about a, a dad who dresses up as Santa Claus and their kid catches them. And that's the whole thing. That's why mommy's kissing Santa Claus. Cause daddy's dressing up. I always right. took that, that I always took that Carol literally. I thought that like, 
it was just kind of a thing like, hey, Santa Claus leaves presents for the kids. And oh, by the way, he's going to cuck your wife. Like, that's the trade off. Right. You know what I mean? Like and and that's cool for me as a kid. Like, what do I care? Right. Like I'm getting presents Man. on the reg, dude. So, and, you know, I was really Is just sort the of shocked. You have to give up mom dukes to, uh, to Santa well, Claus. Yeah, so <laughs> that's what I thought. And so that's why I was like even more shocked that he was like so bent out of shape about it, even if it was a misunderstanding, because I thought that was just something that happened. And then they were in an open relationship. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then I find it was out just that an it's understood thing. Santa Claus is the one who put the satin on your panties. He gets around <laughs> like Tupac. Yeah, dude. And so it turns out that it's just my dumb ass, you know, misinterpreting the lyrics to this song the whole time. And man, it's just, you know, you, you left with egg on your face and shit in your stocking. Sucks, <laughs> or man. eggnog on your face as the case may be. Right? <laughs> yeah. Or so he says it's eggnog, but it tastes a little salty. <laughs> oh man well dude i don't yeah i don't uh i got nothing for you on that it must be really tough being banned from the holidays as a whole i mean uh your, your wife's you know jewish obviously you can't celebrate hanukkah you just gotta n- n- nothing for this guy no kwanzaa no kwanzaa bot <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah just wholesale banned from the holidays so but it's cool because now I just make like a fuck ton of cookies and give them to my friends and uh, none for old Santa Claus. So, you know, you're missing out too, bitch. Yeah, that's what's up. Get at me, Santa. Oh, man. And rough, rough times. Rough times. Well, we'll all uh, we'll all light a candle for you on the old menorah for, uh, for Jason. <laughs> In memory of Jason's Thanks, holiday experience. Um, Jason, we have a movie to discuss. Yes, we do. Looking at uh, 2005, 2006's Cash yes, by sir. Michael Haneke. Uh, <laughs> Jason, why don't you break us down uh, what Cash is all about? All right, man. From Google, without warning, happy, successful Parisian couple, George, played by Daniel Attili, and Anne Laurent, played by Juliette Binoche, the lovely Juliette Binoche, receive anonymous videos suggesting that they are being stalked. The tapes are followed by disturbingly violent, if childish, drawings. George, a well-known literary talk show host, shrugs off the mysterious messages, but Anna grows increasingly distressed and fearful for their teenage son. She grows to suspect an incident in George's past is behind the increasing torment. Ryan, what did you think about this movie? Jason, this is normally where we'd play a trailer, and I'd say I'd love to tell you, and we'll come back after this trailer. However, since this movie is in French, we are at another impasse of a foreign film wherein we have no trailer and no clips so the listeners are stuck listening to just you and i for Oof. the entirety of this show always apologies rough. in advance yeah so yeah. uh yeah this is uh we're just gonna have to plow through this one this was a mixed bag i um i had mixed feelings about this one okay um i'm really really curious as to very few notes but i i have a lot to say about it Interesting. really curious what your take on it was so i'm gonna toss it back to you and as always say Jason, what did you think about this movie? (laughs) Well, I suppose we'll have to go ahead and uh, get into it here. But Ryan, first, I'm going to need you to let me know where we should start. This is a nice volley. I like this. We're starting at the beginning. (laughs) At the beginning, indeed. So when we open, we've actually got something of an awkward frame as credits roll over an image of a typical suburban neighborhood. The camera's positioned across the street from an apartment complex and in between two other complexes, the walls of which create a claustrophobic feel on either side of the frame. Now, sedans and healthy shrubs litter the street, while the top of a car and a motorcycle are cut off at the bottom of the frame. 
Everything comes together to give it a 4-3 feel, though it isn't. And for almost the entire shot, we also hear very little going on, save for that of birds chirping, until the off-screen voices interrupt that. It's both a man and a woman. They interrupt the silence. Now, Ryan, when the voices chime in, the man is basically asking, like, where did you find this? She responds, a plastic bag on the porch. We, we don't exactly know what it is yet. And that's going to kind of be a theme where there's certain things talked about that are slowly revealed over the course of the film. Uh, the man, the protagonist, uh, goes out into the street. He's obviously sort of paranoid that someone is watching him or something like that. Uh, he's looking for someone or something, but he can't find them. And he goes back into the house. Now, Ryan, here's the first thing I will say, okay? Which is that, like, you know, three to five minutes into this film, one of the great reveals of all time, okay? I, and maybe that's a little bit hyperbolic, but I absolutely loved the reveal because... Like I said, I thought that this opening shot of just this apartment complex, was, like it was really busy. It wasn't necessarily like artistically framed. Uh, it was just it was it was a really awkward shot. And it was interesting because I know Hanique's reputation as a very sort of esteemed filmmaker. And I thought it was a really just sort of, again, like non it wasn't even ugly. It was just very sort of like a mediocre shot that someone would do. So when all of a sudden we see the static lines of him fast forwarding on that frame and then all of a sudden we, we realize that like they're watching a video of that I, I loved that because I did not see that coming it was an honest legitimate surprise did, did you have any reaction to that that the same for you or was it not really the same no same there's a lot of uh twists and turns in this film obviously um where they kind of pull you out of it and pull you back into it um so real quick this was filmed in 2005 which is an awkward time for cinema. <laughs> what? No, 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 no. I, I'm sorry. I, I, th I think you're, I, now that you said an awkward time for cinema, I think you're about to go into maybe digital photography. I thought you were going to say it's a weird time for them to lean so heavy into VCRs. Because <laughs> 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 it's like v VCRs and cassettes in like 06. It was like, we're, I, don't, I think we were past that. Because I, I, I think I got a DVD player in junior high, and that right. I was like graduated college. Well, not that I actually like graduated. Uh, just letting you guys know, but uh, I was done with college by then. <laughs> let's say. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, d DVDs weren't so accessible that you would film things on them um, for district, like to, to give out, like for surveillance. Well, but you also weren't using tapes. like giant whatever millimeter those old school VHSs. You're on the mini DVs at that. Yeah, point. Yeah. Well, and this is where I'm going with this, right? And this the the meta thing about all of it is that it's you know uh, even as filmmakers it was awkward because digital had hadn't quite crossed the threshold to be a cinematic norm as we know it now. But film you know it was much more affordable than film for indie cinema, so you could go make something like this. Um, but it you know it still had its limitations, and I think this film was rife with those limitations uh, okay. from the cinematography standpoint. Um, yeah, I can see so that. So that said, my initial you know, take was what am I watching? Because I had a very digital, like early two thousands digital look to it. Now yeah. my eyes had to adjust. It's like walking outside after you've been inside all day and your eyes kind of adjust to the sun. Like I just had to adjust to that digital look for a second. But uh, yeah, when I saw the static and everything, I was like, Oh, okay. We're watching a surveillance tape. And then we pull back to the actual film 
and then it still looks digital. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, 2005. <laughs> but it looks okay. But it was at least like a little bit more artistically shot. You know, there's well, it was there's lit. more right, contrast, yeah. the way it was lit, etc. And yeah. And, yeah. and and honestly, the lighting did a lot of the heavy lifting. To well, make also, and, and the other thing that we'll get into later is camera movement as well, which which we'll touch on in a minute here. So or the lack thereof. Yes. Um, I don't know what your take on it was, but this was a very static movie. Uh, that camera was on sticks a lot. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> uh, yes and no. We'll get into that in a minute here. So uh, literally in a minute here. So that's why I'm going to move us okay. forward. <laughs> <laughs> so the couple are watching this tape, right? And they want to know where it came from. Uh, we get to see the outside of their house on this surveillance footage that they're watching. So we realize now that they're being spied on or something to that effect, even if we're not 100% clear exactly what's going on. And so this is what I wanted to to bring up, is I think that for me, I think Hanique's pretty upfront with his filmmaking style, and he kind of doles out most of his sort of tricks or his motifs, so to say, within the first half hour. Now, you're saying that the movie was on sticks for a lot of the film. I, I suppose, I suppose maybe that's true because it's probably true that most films are on sticks most of the time. Right. I mean, if we're taking out your giant $200 million epics, right? Like that's, it's an economical style of filmmaking. And especially with the films that we watch on this show, right? Like, uh, what, what am I thinking of? Uh, not that it was a great film, but you know, your friends and neighbors was a perfect example of that, right? Where it's just like, okay, sure, sure. grab your wide right. shot, go in, get your close-ups. We yeah. talked about that, correct? Yeah, yeah. get your so, coverage. Yeah, but here's the thing. So y- you say that, but this scene right here, okay, is absolutely not that because it starts. If it doesn't start in the living room, it starts in the kitchen, and it's a two-shot. I don't know. Actually, it does start in the living room and then it follows George into the kitchen. It sets up like a two shot of the two of them. They talk for a minute. And then I think George goes over to like a cabinet and then it follows the two of them back outside, uh, not outside, but outside of the kitchen into the dining room. And then it sets up like a two shot. And it's this really long, like five minute take with a significant amount of dolly movement. Now, I don't I won't say that we have a lot of instances of that throughout the course of the film, but a they are there. And then that's also not to bring up the sort of, you know, almost Kubrickian flat tracking dolly shots that he does, like outside the school a little bit later, like when he's picked up and stuff. I would add to that, Jason, that uh, it's my take on it, that that was done intentionally, keeping the camera um, in place for, for a lot of the film, because you never quite know if you are, um, to, to, to your point a, a moment ago, you never quite know if you're watching uh, surveillance tape if it's a POV yeah, of true. someone hiding if it's uh, if you're in the moment itself and uh, you're actually watching the scene play out from the cinematographers you know from the point of view of the camera in a mise-en-scene kind of way um, so it's always keeping you on your back foot as far as what are they showing you because this film if nothing else is elusive it's very mysterious sure. enigmatic um, and you end the film really not knowing yeah, you know, it's one of those films that leaves it up to the viewer to make that come to their own conclusions. And yep. I'm really excited to get to that so that you and I could discuss what your take on it was versus mine. But um, yeah, my, my understanding of the cinematography was that it was static uh, because, you know, they kept the, the theme throughout the film is surveillance, spying. I mean, the, the name of the film is Cash, which in French means hidden. So, um, you know, it's all about hiding and, and what are you hiding and, uh, what the truth is and so forth. So, um, yeah, I also want to, uh, before we go much further, let you know that, um, this was one of the rare instances I have had 
and it's so special when this happens, where I knew nothing about this film. I had never seen a trailer for this film. Same. Um, I had only seen the poster with the splash of red across it against the white gradient. And um, yeah, uh, I went into this completely blind, which was uh, one of those rare, fantastic movie experiences. So um, that that gave a lot of enjoyment to me. But uh, definitely anyways. even down to the fact that I'm sure for you now, like the cover and the poster hits a little differently. <laughs> right. <laughs> After right. watching yeah, the film, it's like, oh, OK, yep. yeah, that's uh, got it. See what's going on there. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit, of course. <laughs> so now, yeah, now now here's the thing, Ryan. I'm going to come out and say this right now, which is that this is actually a movie that I really want to watch again. Now, not necessarily mm-hmm. immediately, but yeah. Uh, so full disclosure, been been a crazy week. I just watched this film last night. Uh, so uh, I, did... I watched it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. So there is I feel like this is a film where there are pieces of the puzzle here that I haven't necessarily pieced them together because I didn't have the time to really sit down and work through it yet. And maybe we'll end up okay. doing that over the course of this episode, right? So Yeah, because I did a deep dive on this one. Oh, did you? Um, okay, great. Because yes. oh yeah, so that's gonna be good because we're gonna be able to work through that. Because yeah, I, I didn't have time to sit here and chew on it, but it's just it's one of those things where especially by way of reputation and by way of what's on the screen, it's like, okay, dude, this this Michael Hanik guy very clearly knows how to make a film, very clearly knows what's up. Seems like he's not the guy to waste a frame or a shot. So I feel like a lot of these uh, things that seem maybe a little out of sorts or appear superfluous on, on the surface are really not, and they're really sort of, uh, you know, Lynchian like clues, if you will, to what's going on without just telling you what's going on through dialogue. You know, I think there's, I think it's like we, uh, like we looked at with Jonathan Glazer and under the skin, you know, I do think that there's a lot of nonverbal communication that the filmmaker is trying to project. And I just didn't have enough time to sit down and put everything together. So it'll be fun to have that conversation with you. So one of the first things, for example, is like this next sequence and, and all of the other sequences of the kids swimming. And I feel like, you know, it's either it's either a metaphor or it's a direct hint as to and I think that maybe when all is said and done, the kid had a certain level of involvement that maybe I didn't pick up on initially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But like I said, I haven't 100 percent worked through that, but it's just there's a lot of things that appear to not make sense. And it's kind of one of those things like, you know, when you're talking to someone who, you know, they're smarter than you are and they say something and you don't know what it means and you're like, that's on me. <laughs> they know what they're happens talking all about. The time I on don't this know podcast. what they're talking about, but they know it happens what all the time about. on this podcast. When I talk to Jason. <laughs> so I, there was a lot of moments like that where it's like, that seems superfluous. So it's probably not because again, that's just the vibe I get from this guy. Right. But again, and didn't necessarily would have loved to have more time to work through it. But anyway, so, um, you know, moving forward from there, we've got another sort of long time uh, or rather a long nighttime surveillance shot. We learn quickly that George is this talk show host for this public access program. From what I can tell, it's a roundtable about literature that they have. And from there, he returns home. There's another tape. They watch it. We get a very quick shot at first of the paper that it was wrapped in, the video was wrapped in. And it's got this very sort of childlike image that we don't see super long. But we cut back to it after seeing some of the surveillance, and it's basically a childish drawing of a kid with a, or a person anyways, with blood coming out of their mouth. And so it's a little, 
it's not like an inherently it's a violent drawing it's not inherently creepy but in context of what it might mean and who it's coming from uh it's definitely a little bit unsettling so and then you know from there they go to the police station but the police aren't willing to do anything for them because there's no active violent threats that have come about yet yeah it was good to know that uh, the french have useless police officers as well <laughs> i was like oh okay that's not uh, just here in let America. us know that's after every- you die and we'll come help you out yeah, yeah. <laughs> Limited resources. Sorry, what do you want to say? Fill out form 32B629 and uh, <laughs> put it in the file over there. Now, Also, what... his uh, his literary uh, talk show, uh, I just want to get this in real quick, uh, directly reminded me in aesthetics to World of the Psychic from Ghostbusters 2 with Peter Venkman. Oh, totally. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it looked exactly like that. <laughs> well, I think there's, there's, there's a... There's like a, a PBS slash public access aesthetic, right? And it's very consistent. Yeah. And it always has that thing where it, yeah, it feels like it's being recorded in someone's basement, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> on, like Aurora, ba- on like Betamax yeah. tape from 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Party on, Wayne. <laughs> it's like, we're in Wayne's basement, only that's not Wayne's basement. Isn't that weird? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Now, Ryan, you touched on this earlier, okay? And I actually think the film, I, I, I kind of want to just get a little bit of clarity, uh, <laughs> a running theme of this film, right? But of your position on how it played with the digital. Because look, it was, again, sort of the, you know, dawn of digital filmmaking, right? You didn't get, it didn't have the compatibility with the lenses and shit that you get today, right? So obviously everything looks a little bit differently. But I also think that, and I think you kind of touched on this, I think that it, also sort of conceptually did a good job of leaning into that, right? Like, oh, okay, so we've got this digital technology. It's cheap, but it doesn't look so great. But hey, you know, we can center this around surveillance technology. And so it'll give right. that effect. And yep. um, I think that it did a really good job of sort of not biting off more than it could chew in that regard and sort of finding sure. a way to be like, okay, we have these limitations. Can we reverse engineer this thing in such a way that we can figure out a way to make it work, you know? And I think they did that pretty effectively. What was going on on the screen too, with the acting and, um, you know, everybody sold the shit out of their roles, in my opinion. Sure. And, uh, so you, you, again, you just kind of adjust to it. And then, you know, if the director and actors and all the other department heads are doing their job, the medium stops mattering as much. Um, cause you know, sure. sometimes as yeah. much as that's, you know, cinematography is kind of like salt, right? Like you always want to do some finishing salt. Salt on a, on an entree is great. But if it's over salted, then it just that becomes in the front of it and you don't get to really enjoy the dish itself. And so sometimes cinematography is so front forward in a in a filmmaker's decision making that it kind of takes away from in some regards, the performances and, you know, a film can be too epic sometimes, you know, in my opinion. And so you're like watching all this beautiful, you know, stellar shit, but you're not really paying attention as much because you're so taken by the cinematography. Anyway, uh, this was not that this was uh, again, leaned very heavily into the surveillance thing and you never really, and you know, ultimately I think this was a, you know, it kind of made you feel like you were surveilling this situation yeah, as totally. well. Put the viewer in that seat. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I thought it did that really effectively. And look, and then, you know, after that, for example, we do get the what I referenced earlier, the really nice tracking shot where George picks up. His son's name is Perot, by the way. 
Uh, I may be yes. butchering that pronunciation, but we'll call him Perot. And yeah, so he goes to pick him up at school. And then again, we get that nice Kubrick tracking shot, right? Where it starts and then it sort of goes down and watches him get in and comes back before it goes in for the close-ups inside the vehicle. And I thought that was a really nice shot. So it was around this time in the film too, speaking of department heads and cinematography, that I happened to notice, um, man, this sound design is really forward. And then I was like, oh, that's because there's no music. Did you happen to notice there's not any score yeah. to this film? Yeah, and and I was thinking about it, and I was wondering if that's like a, a Michael Hanique uh, signature, because I was thinking about funny games, and I remember having a very similar reaction to funny games where there wasn't a lot of music, and you know when the when the kids would show up to the house, you know he just kind of let like the birds chirp outside, and Midsummer yes, Mid right. did that a little bit too, you know, where it's like sort of playing against convention, right? Instead of like the you know Halloween like ooh, ooh, ah, 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 or you know Nightmare <laughs> right. Before Elm Street, whatever the hell it is, or just you know the low like. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's just like, dude, just fucking be silent, man. Just let the let the fucking birds chirp, and that's it, right? That that could be just as unsettling as anything else because it, it just it it creates this sense of normalcy, and then the threatening behavior juxtaposes that, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, and you know, being in France, um, you know, they're all dressed to the nines always, and uh, so anytime they're walking anywhere with no music or score behind them, and if they're not talking, especially, they're all wearing you know fancy shoes, and on those uh, cobblestone streets, it sounds like horses. Like it's crazy how front forward some of their walking and steps, even uh, how the subtleties of that that just normally would go right on by. It was like, oh my god, dude, this this foley dude crushed it with the, <laughs> with the horse clomps. <laughs> Picturing a couple of coconuts, you know, like straight up Monty Python style <laughs> sound booth. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, and then from there. So this is actually, I would say, where kind of the film uh, changes its style a little bit and we get a lot more. So it's this uh, dinner party scene. And it's the one where the friend is sort of telling the story about his encounter with the woman and she thought he looked like her dog. And it was this whole this understanding thing. But if you'll notice, so his entire story that he tells is probably what three minutes let's call it right and it's just a single Ish, yeah yeah and it's just a single wide shot the whole time yes guy never cuts and then after he tells the story there's a ring at the doorbell and then from there everything goes to a series of singles where it's a bunch of individual close-ups and then it's no longer showing the entire party together as one and i think it's to sort of show the distrust, the element of mistrust that's introduced, um, because then he starts shooting all of them individually and cutting them together. So they go from being a collective whole to a series of individuals. I thought that was really effectively done. That's great. Yeah. I, again, um, I think a lot of decisions were made cinematography wise. If you can't use the camera you want or if it doesn't exist yet, um, then you know, you have to use the tools that, that are available to you. And this, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of intention was brought to the cinematography of this film. Um, and that's a great pickup right there. I didn't, I didn't really gather that. So I'm glad you brought that to my attention that, uh, you know, they, they were once, I mean, that was the moment, right. That they started to break off and lies were being told and so yeah. forth. And, and, uh, yeah. So that was from there on out, we're not together anymore. <laughs> yeah. And we do see that, the, you know, we're not exactly sure what's going on, but there's that whole, little misunderstanding where the guy says that their friend Federico is working on a movie and then it comes up a little bit later and he's like, Hey, how's the script? And he's like, what script? And he's like for the movie. He's like, Oh, right. Yeah. I don't know. And it was just like, wait, so there's obviously some sort of, you know, misdirection going on there again. Uh, mm -hmm. Another 
aspect that I would love to have been able to chew on longer or go back and rewatch and kind of make sense of. But um, but yeah, so I think that whatever's going on kind of has to do with maybe this guy. What's his name? What is this guy's name? He's the one that uh, she meets with later on. Is it Francois? Is that him? Sure. Why not? <laughs> Jean. I don't know. Either way. Um, it's the one that the kid basically thinks that she's having an affair with. Correct. So, yeah. And so I think he's involved to a degree. I think the kid's involved to some degree, but haven't, again, really worked through what all that means. Now, they get another video. So basically, the wife, Anne, has put it out there to the party guests what's going on. They're getting these calls, they're getting these videos. So George is like, well, cat's out of the bag. Let's go ahead and watch the video. And it ends up being of whoever is sending these videos going to the house that he grew up at, right? So there's some sort of potentially threatening insinuation that uh, his parents might be targeted. So he goes to visit them the next day, though dad isn't there. It's just the mom. She's living there with the caretaker. And she immediately knows that something's up. She's trying to ask him what's going on. And he's just like, oh, yeah, nothing, nothing. Don't worry about it, right? And um, there's also a... Now, there's also something that happens, too, that I believe is reflective of what what we do know by the end of the film, okay? And that's basically what George did to this guy Majid that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And so we get this close-up, and I wasn't really sure as well as a cutaway. I wasn't really sure what was going on at the moment, but I think it kind of makes sense later. And it's of this kid, you know, and at first you think it's kind of a dream, and it does end up being a dream, but it's uh, this kid cutting the head off of a chicken, and, you know, we, we, we watch the whole thing happen and the chicken kind of flutter around. And then he turns to another kid who's watching him, who's younger, who we can kind of tell is supposed to be George as a kid. And it kind of runs up and attacks him. And then George wakes up in that cold sweat from his, his dream. And uh, this is basically, you know, between that and then there's another shot that happens where, like, we get this quick push in and it's, it happens a little bit earlier. And it's where the kid is, like, bleeding from the mouth. And at first, it's like, what the hell is going on? This seems so random. And then we find out right. that these are all sort of things that he did to this guy, Majid, as a kid. We'll go into that in just a moment here. So, um, and, and it's worth noting, too. I don't know if we pointed this out or not. If we already did, then I'll edit this out. But <laughs> um, <laughs> the the video cassettes that he keeps being left at his doorstep, at his work, et cetera, et cetera, are all wrapped in, a, uh, in childlike drawings. And um, so far, I think we've seen... Uh, you know, a drawing of like a childlike crayon drawing of a stick figure with blood coming out of its mouth. Mm -hmm. We've also seen a chicken with blood on its neck uh, pouring onto the ground. Right. Um, So there we see those first. And then now they're starting in this part of the film and starting to substantiate that with these flashbacks uh, of sorts uh, that we come to find out are flashbacks. But as they're showing to us, we don't know what the hell they are. They're kind of just these jarring graphic images. Um, I also didn't quite understand a, the chicken thing, you know, I, I saw the, the, the kid holding the chicken and the two kids and then he lifts the axe and I'm, I was like, oh, wait, what? And then the thing was literally running around like a chicken with its head cut off, which yeah. is very kind of disconcerting. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> how they did that. If that if they like digitally did that. Or oh, what. no, dude, but, that uh, was totally real. That's just some shit where they have like different laws in France or something. Okay. They absolutely, like, there's no it. way that they got around that. Or it was like the chicken was going to be slaughtered anyways. So they're like, hey, you're going to kill the chicken. Can we just do it on film and have this guy do it and pay Fair. her some money. And they were like, yeah, sure. I was a little off putting. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> As I'm sure it was supposed to be. Yeah. Watching a literal chicken with its head cut off running around was a little off putting, but uh, yeah, like you said, as well, as much as it should be. And we see the older kid that chops the, 
the one kid, the bigger kid with the, that chops the chicken with his head cut off, approaching a smaller child. I think that's around this point in time as well. Yes. With like blood all over him and everything. Um, yeah, I've got things to say about all these, all this stuff, but we'll wait till we get a little further down the line. Okay, well, you know, I think uh, I think this is actually going to be a, good, a pretty good point to get into it because our next scene is actually where we do get the reveal of the Majid character. And so George and his wife, Anne, are watching the video. They're able to determine what street uh, something is. I believe it's Lennon Avenue. They can tell from, from freeze-framing it. And so George also mentions that uh, he thinks he knows what's going on. And uh, <laughs> that was actually a really interesting scene, too. So he basically is like, hey, wife, pretty sure I know what's going on, but I'm not going to tell you. Let me work through this. She's like, what do you mean you're not going to tell me? And he's like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. I'm going to find out first. And then if it's cool, I'll let you know. And if not, and then she's like, well, well, why don't you just tell me what you think is going on? And he's like, nah, nah, I don't want to. And she's like, why not? Yeah, How do like, you think that was going to go over as a married man? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, so here's the thing. First of all, like, just keep your fucking mouth shut first and foremost, if you're not ready to bring it up, dude, like that's a, I mean, that's, that, that's just life advice, right? Like don't speak until you know for sure that, you know, something is what it is or, you know, don't play your cards too, too quickly. Don't tip your hand, whatever. Um, but secondly, like, yeah, I mean, and, and the way that it does, you know, speak to the nature of their relationship and how based on this, you know, it isn't a picture perfect marriage and we don't need to go into all of the flashbacks and see what happened before. We can just sort of tell that there's this certain detachment, you know, that, that occurs between the two of them. And basically you can tell that he's sort of a domineering sort that she's asked to trust him all the time. And he's never willing to do the same with her. She references that and I thought it was a really effective way to bring in that element of sort of marital strife and, and relationship drama without going so heavy or modeling into it. You know what I mean? Right. No, I agree. Yeah. So from there, though, so George goes back. He, he ends up finding the apartment. The video shows a sort of dingy hallway. He's able to find that hallway and he goes, buzzes the door. The person answers and it's this kind of older guy. And Immediately, we can tell that the guy recognizes George, but that George doesn't recognize the guy. And it's a little bit unclear exactly what's going on there. Uh, and there's a lot of allusions sort of being made to the past. And George is like, you know, you're sending these tapes, but the guy's in full denial. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about with the tapes. But at the same time, he still very clearly knows him. And so, you know, for a couple minutes there, it does a really effective job of, of you know, you're not really sure who's telling what, what the nature of everything is. And then it basically becomes revealed uh, shortly thereafter that uh, this guy was an orphan back in the day. So George's parents uh, had uh, basically, I, I don't believe they were full on slaves. They were more like housekeepers, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So they had these housekeepers that were Algerian. And apparently there was a real life event in France uh, in the 60s or something like that, where they basically like slaughtered a bunch of Algerians. I believe it was a sort of a national, you know, race sort of targeted thing. And um, and so the two parents that were the housekeepers for George's family were among those people. They got killed. The parents of George ended up feeling guilty. And so they went to adopt the child that these two uh, Algerian couple that the Algerian couple had. And it's this guy Majid and George really wasn't pleased with that. Right. Like he got jealous. He didn't like having him around. He was an only child. He wanted things to stay that way. So he starts to make up lies about what this Majid kid is doing 
so that eventually the parents will get rid of him in some form or another, right? That's that's where all of this comes from. And so it's there's an element of guilt that George either does or doesn't have as it relates to that. And I believe that's kind of what a lot of the film is centered around. But basically, among the lies that he told were that he was bleeding from the mouth, uh, the kid was, and then also that uh, the family wanted the kid to cut the head off this chicken, which they really didn't. And, uh, so all, you know, those two things specifically are represented by the drawings that you just spoke of, as well as those tiny cutaway dream sequences that we saw. Right. So real quick, uh, just to chime in, uh, the, the bleeding from the mouth and the cutting of the chicken to get blood on the child. So, he told his parents, so he was jealous of this kid who all of a sudden was given preferential treatment when he was made to share a room. He was like six years old at the time. Yes. And so he's being a jealous kid. He sees this son of the caretakers being given preferential treatment based on what had happened to his parents. So his parents were drowned in the same river, which, like you said, is a real event that I had n- no idea about until this film. Same. Yeah. I looked it up and it was in 1961. Um, I guess it was uh, there's a conflict between the French and the Algerians. There was this pro-Algerian protest that happened down in Paris and the cops showed up and beat and killed a bunch of them, like hundreds of them. And so uh, this kid's parents were amongst those. And um, all of a sudden now he's getting preferential treatment by the housekeepers, i.e. My, uh, George's parents. So the kid is jealous, um, George. And so uh, he lies and Tells the kid that the parents want this chicken dead. He's a bad chicken. Kid kills the chicken. Blood all over. Then he goes and tells his parents, this kid's coughing up blood. Look at him. There's blood all over him. And apparently that was due to a tuberculosis outbreak in France at the time. And um, and t- with tuberculosis, you cough up blood. Mm-hmm. So then he's able to go back and say, look, see, he's covered in blood and blah, blah, blah. So they have to get rid of the kid because tuberculosis um, is highly contagious, I guess. Interesting. So... Yeah, so it's like, we got to get this kid out. So they send him to a uh, hospital, and they're like, yeah, we don't want him back, and his parents are dead anyway, so it's like, just go ahead and uh, you know put him in the foster care system, which is probably going to be what's best for him. So he gets the medical attention, and you know they're trying to protect their own family. They're like, yeah, he's he's dirty. So that all took um, uh, Majit's uh, life in a completely different direction, obviously, because he was going to be living this life of privilege as an yeah. adopted son of this rich uh, family. And uh, now he's in the foster care system and lost in the shuffle, all because uh, George lied about the tuberculosis and uh, to get rid of him. Gotcha. And, uh, mission accomplished. Yeah. So anyway. Cool. Yeah. Learn a little bit of history here. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ryan, yeah, from that's the whole crux of conflict where everything sort of stems from. And from there, uh, we've got the moment where the wife's hanging out with that guy that the son thinks she's having the affair with, forget if it was Francois, whatever. And she returns home, but Perot, the son, he's not there, right? So now we've got a missing persons case and George is able to get the cops to go with him back to the apartment of the Majid character. And uh-huh. except when they get there, Majid doesn't answer the door. It's this younger guy. Now this was also an interesting moment because for, you know, a few minutes until we, we see them in the cop car later, I wasn't sure if it was like a bait and switch, right? If like somebody else was now living there and this Majid guy was gone, you know, and they were trying to pull like a con. And that's really that's that's really one of the things that I love about this film is it's like, 
you know, what we, we, we get really into, when I say we, I mean, anybody that's watched the films, right? Like we get into the sort of, what can we take about the film after the fact and really dissect it, right? So a film like 2001, you can write books on it, you know, you can discuss it to death, right? And that's great. But there's also these sort of little mini moments uh, within film that are highly effective, right? So those, that, the, those few minutes where we don't know, like that's a masterful effect, right? This the way that you certain play that. We can't really talk about it after the fact because we very quickly find out that it's not the case, but just the fact that they were able to like l- like plant that seed for those few minutes, you know, th- I think little moments like that tend to go underappreciated by, you know, us and by the filmmaking community or the film watching community as a whole. Right, right. No, this film constantly is uh, pulling the rug out from out of you, and um, to the very end. I mean, uh, you know, the, when the when the credits are rolling, you're still kind of like, huh. Yep. And one thing, one thing I found really interesting um, about this film that I, I wrote down in my notes around this time in the film is that it's really kind of murky as to what genre this film even is, right? Yeah, so totally. like, there, is it a thriller? Because it's not fast paced enough to be a thriller. The th- whole thing plays out very slow and methodical, uh, but it's too much of a criminal who done it. And there's like you know all this death and back and forth and bait and switching to be a drama. Sure. Um, it almost felt very um, Hitchcockian to me. Did you get any Hitchcock vibes? Like the way that Hitchcock would play out a thriller very slow and methodically, almost like North by Northwest or whatever. Um, now, granted, Hitchcock had a big traumatic score with, you know, strings and horns and all this triumphant shit to kind of let you know uh, when stuff was going down where this one played out very silent. And I thought the lack of music, especially as these twists and turns were happening in the middle of the film, that's where I noticed the lack of music was most impactful because normally in a film you would have these big swooping crescendos or the lack of music would emphasize something that you're supposed to be paying attention to. Yeah. Uh, music directs your attention and gives you uh, emphasis and emotion in various ways that you may not realize is happening. Um, you know, gives you a lot of subtext and kind of instructs how you're supposed to feel about a certain thing or plays against type, but no music at all just leaves you naked there as the viewer um, to kind of figure it out on your own. Right. Like that was, Really kind of odd. It was an odd experience. This was a very odd watch. Uh, the it whole was. Thing. The, the, I was trying to figure out what what is this? And is there going to be some big twist at the end? Is this a whodunit? Or is this a drama where we find out something very sad happened and it's going to be this emotional turn wherein, uh, you know, it's a husband and wife thing because we're seeing a lot of the relationships develop and, and uh, splinter around this time as well. Like you said, with the son um, being missing and then when we finally get the sun back uh, in the scenes ahead here in the next moments. Um, and he's returned to the fold and we find out uh, supposedly he was just at a friend's house whose mother works as a night nurse. Yeah. And so she, she wasn't around to be able to report this or didn't know that he was even over there. And so, um, you know, then the son comes back and accuses the mother of cheating, like to what you were saying earlier with the Francois or whatever character. Um, and I love that we call him Francois, just like the only generic French name. That <laughs> <laughs> no, I really think his name is Francois, but we've also just committed to that at this point. Like, it could be, it could be Bill, and we're just like, nope, it's Francois for sure. It's Francois. Look at that guy. Based that on nothing Francois other than we have said it is. <laughs> I hope there's a. I hope they do that in other countries too. They're like, we'll call him Steve. Like, oh, okay. He looks like a Steve. Uh, John. What's a generic white American? American name. Let's call him Mike. Let's get on with this. <laughs> right, right. So anyways, uh, 
yeah, I, I just thought that um, they did a great job of, like, I, I didn't really know what I was watching. Like, no, I didn't totally, know how to yeah. feel about any of these things or what to expect. Is there going to be this big, you know, uh, crazy moment at the end or is it just going to be subtle? Um, pff, who fucking knows? Uh, who still kind of knows? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of one of the things that, okay, so firstly, to answer your, your question, um, I, I honestly, I think I've, I'm such a basic bitch when it comes to Hitchcock, dude. I think I've seen two of his films. Which is funny because I've seen Psycho like four or five times. I really, really love Psycho. And other than that, I saw The Birds once and didn't care for it. And funny enough, that was actually with you. We watched it in film school way back in Ot 3 or whatever the fuck it was. Oh, that's right. We did watch The Birds in film yeah, school. Yeah, it was for our uh, sound design concentration yeah, class, yeah, whatever. Um, and yeah, I didn't dig it. Cool sound design, but not a great movie. Anyways. So yeah, so I when people describe things as being Hitchcockian, like I... <laughs> Cinematic confession. I don't know what that means because I haven't seen enough of his work, and I don't. I have a feeling that <laughs> I have a feeling that Psycho is maybe a little bit different, and then some of his most of his other work because it doesn't feel the way that people describe his work as being in general. Like to me, like Psycho moves, and it's uh, it's got a, it's got a good clip, and I don't know. So uh, I you know, but I do see what you're saying. Here's here's the thing. I'm actually I the so to me when I was watching this. And this is, I think, sort of one of the interesting things about having so many foreign films that we look at, right? Which is that you notice that foreign cinema tends to be a lot less dramatic with the performances as well as the overall filmmaking, right? So one of the sort of hallmarks of a lot of American films, and especially when you look at your more mainstream fare, right, is it's the... uh, you know, the, the Jerry Maguire ending, right? We talk about, right? You know, running through the rain to go see the girl at the end and loudly proclaim your love and big swell of orchestra. And I mean, we've been doing that since the 40s, you know, with all of uh, the the romantic comedies from back then and the, and the dramatic romances from back then and the musicals. And so, you know, we do things very big over here and we expect there to be a freaking hell of a climax, right? But when we watch these other films, right, whether it's a, a Japanese film like High and Low or whether it's a – so I, this <laughs> this was interesting because this is a French film from an Austrian filmmaker who was born in Germany. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, I think Hanique's pretty cultured. I think he's probably – you know, speaks a few different languages. I, I've seen interviews with him both in French and German. Um, so, you know, I'm sure he's a smart dude. But, uh, but yeah, so – and I think that in general, you know, again, it's sort of like like high and low. If you remember, that just ended. There was no like swelling crescendo. Like we found out who did it. He went to jail. Cops wrapped it up. And it was like, all right, cool. We're done. Peace out, y'all. Yep. And we left, you know, yep. um, even going <laughs> even going back to like M in 1932 from Germany with Fritz Lang. You know, like once things get resolved, like, cool, it's over. It's done with that does have a very dramatic third act with Peter Laurie, of course. But even just like the final shot, you know, like they don't really do final shots the way we do final shots anywhere. Like once the movie's over, they're like, cool, it's over. Quick fade out and we're done. You know, it's not the you don't have some giant crane shot that always has to, you know, go up into the sky and show the entire <laughs> valley or nightscape or whatever to the soothing sounds of the Bee Gees or whatever the fuck. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I was just thinking a touch of evil, and then I was like, "Wait, the <laughs> touch of evil. um, 
Yeah, no, uh, you know, that that must, now that you're bringing this up, historically speaking, that must have blown the Germans' mind at the end of World War II when they were like, what? It's over. What are you still uh, upset about? Uh, <laughs> Hitler is dead. Movie's over. It's not like, no, 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 we're going to build a wall and we're taking your country. It's so dramatic. <laughs> Americans, always so overdramatic. <laughs> it's how we do, man. It's how we do. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, so so the way that this movie just kind of just sort of like ends, right? Like with that, like it's a couple minute shot of the school, and then the credits roll, and it also it starts that way. You know, we've just got a couple minutes, uh, or we've got the static shot of the apartment, and then you know the opening credits just kind of pop up and and go across the screen in a very non sexy sort of business like fashion. Uh, it's certainly not a you know David Fincher or a uh, Zack Snyder uh, credit sequence. So right again, yeah. no music. Yeah, and yeah, again, and lack of music. Yeah, so uh, I thought it was you know again, it's always interesting. I mean, uh, for better or worse. And look, I I I do like the ambiguous endings, right? Like I love the the Stanley Kubrick two thousand one. Like we're not going to give you everything or the David Lynch endings, you know. And uh, doesn't mean I always love the film along the way in the case of David Lynch, but I, I do so appreciate not, those endings. We're not ending the film right now, are no, we? No, we're, no, we're no, not. we're not ending the film. Oh, right okay. Now. You're talking about credits rolling. I'm like, you are leaving out a couple of huge chunks here. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, so so let's get back to the film here. So, you know, first of all, again, when the kid does come back home, you described that he was dropped off by the mom. That's the nurse. He's really upset at his mom because he thinks she's having an affair. Now, the reason that I, I suspect this has something to do with what's going on is because that came out of nowhere for me. I was just like, right. what the, like, there's one quick scene of her having some coffee with him and, you know, yeah, like he's maybe a little affectionate with her, but it didn't, it's also France, right? Like we know there's like, you know, physicality and touching and there's not really like social right. bubbles. So, I mean, all of that could just be each other. Goodbye. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, it didn't no seem, deal. didn't seem anything beyond the way that that's typically portrayed as just French people being right. Like they're just affectionate people. And so I, we just, it came out of nowhere, that allegation. And again, you know, so it's like, okay, there must be something here because where the hell did that even come from? I know, just like Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus with you and Christmas, dude. <laughs> you All were just, just a French, misunderstanding, bro. man. All just All a misunderstanding. misunderstanding. Yeah, that's that's the thing. That was a French style sweater too. So, I that's true. Yeah, <laughs> but the uh, so so this so this I I kind of refer to him as the adopted brother, even though he didn't really get adopted at the end of the day, or he was adopted, but it was a very brief brief period of time. So this guy Majid, so he ends up calling George back over. And he's like, hey, want to talk to you about something real quick? George is like, okay. So he comes over and immediately dude closes the door, whips out a razor, straight edge razor, and slits his own throat. And the ensuing gash splatters across the wall in a vertical fashion. And that ends up being the uh, cover image. That's uh, that's what that red gash is on that cover is uh Splash of blood from the guy slitting his own neck, and consequently, why I said it uh, hits a little different. Yeah, he says, uh, "I wanted, I did not send those videotapes just to clear the yeah. air, and I wanted you to be here for this." And then we think there's going to be some revelation or some apology or some heartfelt backstory, and he just fucking whips out a razor and slits his throat instantly. Yeah, and it's like no hesitation. It's like holy shit. <laughs> it was like. And again, no music, no nothing. You're just left there in the silence of the moment with George to. Be like, now what? Because what do you do in that scenario? Like, someone does that, 
<laughs> well, I'll tell you. Like, I'll, do you let yourself out of the window? Like, I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't do what George did, which is like go for a stroll and go see a movie without alerting to the cops to the fact that you were the last person seen with someone with a huge gash in their neck. Like, well, now it does come out later when he's talking to the son, no, I know. Uh, Majit's son, that he did talk to the cops and they cleared his story. But only because his wife had to convince him because he goes and he talks yeah, to his fair. wife in the next scene and she's like, what'd you do? And he's like, yeah, I went for a stroll. And she's like, you know, the cops are going to think you did it, right? And he's like... Yeah, I guess you're right now that you mention it. I should I should report that in. <laughs> Come on, George. Let's go. Let's have a little bit of don't don't, don't be dumb horror guy here. Come on. This guy has never listened to a true crime podcast yeah, exactly, in his life. Exactly, right? Come on, man. They're just, that, that's, what, that's what they're hoping you would do. Whoever's setting you up, that's exactly what they want you to do, bro. Same way you were yelling right. at your wife that uh, that's exactly what they wanted her to do. Uh, who do you think you are, Carol Baskins? Come on, get your <laughs> shit together. <laughs> Dude, you know what sucks is like, I have a, you know how you had to bullshit your way through all those Kurosawa conversations because you had never seen any of his movies? I have to do the same thing with Tiger King. I've literally never seen like 30 seconds oh. of Tiger King. I, I literally don't even, I think I know the name Joe Exotic and the name Carol Baskins. And I think... People think she killed him, but he she got away with it. Is that the general gist of it? Joe Exotic is still alive. He's in prison oh. um, for doing craziness. So uh, Carol Baskin, she kill? Uh, allegedly. Was it? Didn't she like kill someone? And people think she should be in yeah, prison. Yeah, I'm getting there. Oh, okay. Hang on, hang on. Getting there. <laughs> Let's go already. <laughs> Take it easy. Take it easy. So, uh, <laughs> oh man, dude, they should have totally allegedly cast killed her Mario. husband and put him Chris in a meat You've got Mario, dudes. What? I said they should have never cast Chris Pratt. You've got the Mario Italian plumber down. That's about, that's about, that's about, Whatever that was you just did. It's me, Carol Baskins. <laughs> um, so, so uh, yeah, supposedly Carol Baskins, who, by the way, uh, runs Big Cat Rescue no more than five miles from my house currently. I think that came up in season one of Esoterica Cinema. Oh. Big Cat Rescue is right here in old Tampa, Florida. Gotta love Florida. So Big Cat Rescue sounds like the name of a Ted Nugent album, by the way. <laughs> Big Cat Rescue is a Ted Nugent album. It's great, yes. Uh, the ultimate stranglehold. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Big Cat Rescue is a Big Cat Rescue place here. You that that was all about. Yeah, I know. It's this thing they do. And so, yeah, she apparently fed, killed and fed her husband to the cats. Oh, dude, that's and, a tale uh, as old as time, man. I mean, come on. <laughs> Who hasn't done that? No, I'm not, I'm this not is the guy joking, with two dude, cats. I mean, Dude, the fucking uh, what's the uh, the movie with the uh, the musical and the story and the guy who makes people's into pies and shit? Was it the the Demon Barber of Fleet Street? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you know, I feel like uh, I feel like you go back in like you know folklore history or whatever, and and there's totally like tales of you know people who used like human meat, like the. Uh, Whatever that story The Simpsons played off of, you know, where the, the, the gym teacher uses the uh, human meat and feeds it to the kids. Wasn't that like even like a Twilight Zone or some shit back in the day? Uh, I mean, they're Soylent Green as people. <laughs> <laughs> Tale Soylent as Green old as, as time, sir. Or as old as Charlton Heston, at least. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway. So, yeah. So, anyway. So, the wife convinces him. He goes. He calls it in. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, they're not really suspicious of him at all or anything like that. So from there, and Ryan, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the the younger guy that was in Majid's apartment 
was Majid's child. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, yeah. Yes. So he basically... That's his son. Yeah. And so he kind of like wants to... Who George is now convinced is doing all of this. Because yes, the camera angle... Now the other guy's dead, right? So who else could it be? Right. And there was a videotape that George was sent literally from inside... Madrid's apartment. Yeah, got him in trouble with the missus. He was uh, he was giving her the fib, you know, said, oh, I went to go check it out. Uh, there was nobody there. Uh, hours later, a tape shows up of him having a conversation with that person. Correct. So, yeah. So there were th- there were things that were going on that were just there were too many fingers pointed at Majit um, at this point. And so he's convinced that it was Majit. But then Majit swears it wasn't him. Then it's like, well, then it's got to be his son who is mad at me. For condemning his family, uh, I'm certain that the dad, Majid, told the son, like, you know, oh, this man pretty much fucked up our life trajectory, <laughs> and you had all this potential that was robbed from you uh, by this man and his stories at six years old, um, who damned me to orphanage and poverty. So, yeah. uh, and now he's on the television living his best life. So, uh, yeah, now they think it's the son because um, yeah. shit's still kind of going awry, and he's like, you know. Uh, confronting there's this back and forth with the son Majid's son who by the way uh, remains nameless throughout the film intentionally so interesting who's to say (laughs) well and this is and this is what's really interesting is because this is really about the third act of this film and in terms of a traditional three-act structure it is not the feel of a third act where everything's sort of coming together as a matter of fact the filmmaker's really content to sort of let everything feel as though it's not wrapped up even though it may be the case that there's enough pieces of this puzzle there to really understand what's going on. Um, like, right. you know, by like, so when I finished this film, like with just, just going along for the ride and not taking any beats afterwards to reflect, like, I didn't know who did it when all was said and done. I still don't know who did it. I don't even know if that's the point. Yeah, I mean, I, around this time I have in my notes, um, I hope it's a chicken. <laughs> I hope the plot reveal is that it's the it's a chicken's revenge. It's the brother exactly. or a, a distant exactly relative. What I was gonna say <laughs> from the chicken who got beheaded, yep. and and we're gonna see the camera spin around, and there's a scared chicken in the corner in that exact same scene, watching these two kids play out, and there's a Cain and Abel thing that's going on between these <laughs> two children throughout their lives. And meanwhile, it's like the mean chicken fight from uh, Family Guy, you know, where we like do a slow push in, and the chicken squints its eyes really low, yeah. you know. <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm almost sort of getting like uh, malignant the chicken version vibes here too for anybody that's seen that one. Which go back and check it out if you haven't. Great film. I know it came out a few months ago, but. Mwah. Brilliant. It's on my docket. On my docket. I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so because from here, so now like George basically, you know, he he presses the kid, Majid's kid, to tell him that he's doing the videos. He says he's not. And he basically just goes back home and takes a couple sleeping pills and he's like, hey, uh, yeah, this has been uh, so one hell of an ordeal. Uh, <laughs> what uh, a day, right? Yeah. <laughs> Am I right? I'm gonna go to bed. I uh, call the wife, let her know. Hey, yeah, I took a couple sleeping pills. If uh, I'm not resp- you know, if I don't resp- wake up right away when you get home, that's why. Uh, peace out. And then, uh, and then from there, we get the shot of, and I, I assume this is another dream. Uh, it's of the kid basically being taken away from the house as a youth, right? Majid as a six year old right. uh, being taken away. Which I actually would have thought would would have been a fine final shot to go out on. But then that's not the final shot because the actual final shot then goes to a static shot of the exterior of the school. 
and it hangs there for a solid 90 to 120 seconds without anything happening, Mm -hmm. and then credits roll. And so, again, I feel like there's some sort of puzzle piece here going on and ah you missed it you i know i 100 percent missed it yeah that's uh all right you ready for the you ready for the the, the significance of this all right dude blow my mind here what do we got majit comes or majit's son literally walks into frame uh from the right side of frame and walks up the stairs and meets with uh piro and they walk down the steps right in front of camera um against that guardrail and they have a total exchange and they're laughing and having fun. They kind of dab it up, and then Majit's son pieces out, and then Piro goes back up the stairs to join his friends, and then they walk off together. Interesting. So, yeah, no, I totally right. missed that. And I was, and, and it's funny too because I was kind of, I was watching because like there's someone hanging out in the middle of the frame, and yes, on- that looks like three raccoons in a trench coat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that must have been a misdirection, dude, because that's who I was Total watching, and that's who I was waiting to yes. see. And then I even watched through the credits, and then at the very end, he like turns around, just picks up his kid, and walks away. And I was like, God damn it, you got me, honey. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean he looks like Inspector Clouseau from uh, the Pink Panther cartoons or something. Like he's wearing that trademark French khaki trench coat. And, uh, yeah, you yeah. Know, Exactly. And then there's a woman in khaki to the right of him yes, as well. As, and yeah. they're, they're wearing the exact same color coat and their color scheme of their clothes are lighter when everyone else is very dark. Um, and it's again, fa- uh, to their backs are facing camera. So your eyes are drawn to them in some way where, yeah. um, you know, I, yeah. And then it wasn't, as I was watching the woman, I thought I saw Majit's son and I followed, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. And then I saw, you know, him talk to Piro. I was like, Oh fucking there's the thing. With the stuff, I got it. Nailed them. <laughs> okay, so Busted. so so let's consider this for a minute, Ryan. Uh, okay, because obviously, so you know, you had you had time to, to to recognize this and sort of acknowledge it and everything. So, give me give me your just high level like what basically. So it seems clear that he's saying that like these two kids were responsible for everything. So for if if that's the case, or the chicken, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that's the case, <laughs> I'm well, sticking with this. If that's the case, what we need is the why. So I'd, I'd like your uh, insight on that. Well, yeah, I think the uh, it's my take on it. Again, it was left ambiguous. There's no answer. I looked it up online. There's nobody has a clue. Uh, uh, Henique or Henneke, whatever, um, hasn't said one way or another. It's one of those left up to you sure, scenarios. But it's my take on it that Majit's kid basically was guilty of everything that was kind of dribbled out to us that he is mad at this family. And then he leveraged P Rose uh, animosity towards his parents because throughout the entire film, something that I wasn't picking up on until the end. And then when I saw the two of them meet on the stairs, I went back and kind of did a bit of a deep dive to pull this apart to see where I was at in the whole thing. And one thing I did not notice or really pick up on, I mean, I did, but not as much as I probably should have is how neglected P Rose was throughout the entire film. So we are with, uh, George and Anne, uh, the entire film, and so much focus is put on their strained relationship and the tapes that are being left and the uh, hobnobbing that they're doing with friends at dinners and all of that. And then there's all these little offhanded remarks like, oh, where's Piro? Or did you get the kid? And I was like, eh, fuck that kid. Fuck them kids. <laughs> <laughs> and no one really cares about this kid except for that. Uh, I think at one point he's at a swim meet or something. Um, that they're, you know, picking him up from or there to support. But uh, yeah, 90% of the movie 
we're left thinking that the kid isn't really a main character and that's why we're not seeing him in these scenes. But in hindsight, looking back, I think he's just a neglected kid amongst aristocrats. And so I think Majit's kid and Piro, George and Anne's kid, kind of bonded over this thing. And then when, again, when Piro goes missing, um, was he really at that nurse's house or was that just his alibi stating that basically... Because the nurse couldn't corroborate the story. She was like, I was at work, you know, at the hospital until 7 a.m. Well, here's the other so thing, too. The other, I'll, I'll even throw this out there. How do we know that that wasn't complete bullshit? How do we know she's a nurse? How do we know she's this chick's mom or this dude's mom? We don't. I mean, that's fair. Um, one thing I will say is, like, the camera angles that we see on these surveillance tapes that are left for George and Ann throughout the film, uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, they were from such point of views that... Really, it lends itself very well that Majit's kid and uh, Piro, George and Ann's kid, would be the ones doing all this surveilling because they would have the most access. They would know the times that these things. Oh, would sure, play yeah, out. it makes perfect sense. Like from a so a logical. I think standpoint. they tag teamed it to exact some plot of revenge or act out in some way, shape, or form. They're both victims of circumstance that stem back to George and Ann and their sure you know, uh, prioritizing of their lifestyle, so to speak. Well, and the other so. thing too is, you know, and this is, I mean, just spitballing. I don't know if there's anything in the film that suggests this and you can let me know if there is, but I mean, we also don't know Piro's character from the standpoint of perhaps this is not dissimilar from, uh, a previous episode, hard candy, uh, maybe some sort of metering out of justice, right? Like maybe he, found out through whatever set of circumstances, maybe Majid's kid reached out to him or maybe when all of this went down, well, no, he would have been before that, but yeah, maybe Majid's, Majid's kid reached out to him and sort of told him about these things his dad did. And he was like, that's fucked up. We're going to teach him a lesson. It doesn't really go into his motivations, but you know, these are a couple, I suppose, reasons that uh, there could be for it. Well, and at the end of the day, Piro was, what do you say, Jason? Like 13, 14 years yeah, old? 13, yeah. Yeah. So at that age, motivation is, you know, you really just need to light the fuse and let it go because, <laughs> you know, you don't you don't need anything too methodical. You know, sometimes you just act out of emotion without uh, no, rationale or, or reason. No, there's got to be. I mean, there's a str- that's a, that's a strained relationship. I mean, maybe maybe there wasn't a single incident that broke the camel's back. Right. But. If you have well, any no, no, sort I'm saying, of relationship. I'm not saying the fuse wasn't lit, that there wasn't a motivating factor, but I think the neglect, I think that, um, like you said, it, you know, once Majid told him what his father is capable of or what he did, you know, I think that once you set that in motion, you've hit the first domino. And I think Pierrot would have taken that and run with it to a certain degree, um, whether it's uh, acting out for attention or any number of things. I mean, you see this with, um, you know, high school shooters. Uh, you know, school shootings or any kind of, you know, violence from children. Yeah. Um, you know, children are capable of some devious and evil things. Oh, for sure. And so, you know, and sometimes with only the mildest of motivations, sometimes they're just set down a certain path and things build upon themselves. They're getting over their head and they commit to it. And so I think this is kind of one of those moments, perhaps. And Majit was kind of puppeteering the whole thing uh, as an older mentor of sorts um, where a kid like that would look up to someone about Majit's son's age. Yeah, Um, that's true. You see it again on the steps. If you go back and watch that scene, uh, you know, the difference in age doesn't seem so apparent at that point. And Majit's son 
in that scene, if you go back and watch it on the school steps, looks younger. And it's almost my take that that is a precursing scene. Like that's the prequel. Like that's how the whole thing started, not ended. I think we end at the be beginning. Both. It could if be like a Ouroboros my... thing, right? Like that, because that's totally okay. how that would begin sure. and end is with like a fist bump Fair. and exchange, right? But Majin's son looks a little younger. He's dressed down younger. Everything, he's not dressed as mature. So I almost wonder if that's the moment they met and then bonded in some way, shape, or form, and then everything transpired from there. And then we pick up at the beginning of the film where these tapes are starting to be left behind by both of them working in conjunction with each other um, to document. And also, uh, it would lend itself well to... Because how do we know Julia Binoche's character and isn't committing adultery. She states she's not. They're obviously very French friendly, as you stated earlier, um, you know, which has a different standard. But uh, at the same time, if he's out surveilling and hiding cameras and snooping and spying, maybe he knows something that he's not leading on. And maybe he's seen them having an affair. Maybe he's filmed them in certain ways. Maybe he's seen the betrayal that is deeper than we're led to, to believe as the viewer to keep things uh, you know, keep the animosity uh, alive or, or the mystery alive within the film. Thoughts on that? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you could even, uh, I mean, you, yeah, there's, because it's kind of left unclear, you can go a number of ways with it. I mean, maybe he was even trying to, maybe all of this was an initiative to catch his mom in the act, right? And then he accidentally okay. stumbled across this stuff that his dad did. And now it's like, oh shit, sure. well, this is, this is where we are now, right? Um, and then maybe he and still he caught some stuff. Cross paths yeah, maybe he still midway. caught some stuff with his mom along the way, and that's why he knows, and that's why he's treating her the way that he is. But you know, it's no longer the primary goal, right? I'm onto this other thing, but I still know what's up. So fuck you for that. But like, my efforts yep. are going over here now. There's a lot. So this has been uh, our review of Sex Lies and Videotape <laughs> by uh, Steven Soderbergh, <laughs> which, by the way, is still his best film. And he's made like 36 other films since. And I just think that's tragic. Never seen it. <laughs> it's good. It's really good. Get this cinematic convention. I've never seen it. It's hard to watch. I mean, like when I say hard to watch, I mean, I don't know that it's available to stream anywhere. Oh. I don't know. I remember I watched it like way back in the day. That was like one of the I've looked for one it. of the first like red envelope Netflixes that I got was that movie. I remember. But because uh, I love David Spader. That's David Spader, right? James Spader. Yeah. James Spader. Yep. I'm terrible. With da- there's, there's, there's David Spade and there's James Spader and Ryan. I'm here to tell you they're very different people. OK. <laughs> oh, man. Yep. James Spader comes out as Joe Dirt. <laughs> <laughs> just not even playing character just like fuck you oh, I would love to see David Spade playing Ultron in the MCU <laughs> it would have made for such a better movie <laughs> hey guys how y'all doing yeah I'm gonna take over the world <laughs> uh, but anyways yeah so uh, so yeah that this has been uh, Cash aka Hidden and I think it was uh, an interesting one to discuss I'm glad it was the type of film that You know, again, we talk about certain films like I didn't think last week's The Brood really lent itself to as stimulating a conversation. But, you know, when films are left kind of a little open and ambiguous like this, it gives us a lot to chew on and talk about. And I always think it makes for great conversation. So uh, this was a good one. I enjoyed it. So agreed. Let's go ahead and wrap things up as we do. We've got three adjectives. Ryan, what you got? My first is mysterious, and I mean this on a few different levels. Uh, Mysterious with the plot. Obviously, that's the most... um, you know, obvious use of the word, but also genre. Like, you know, I, I still to this day don't really know 
I mean, it's kind of a whodunit, I guess. Uh, thriller, eh, not so much. Drama, definitely. There's a lot of layers. By um, the way, real quick, Ryan, interest- before you continue, uh, I just have to put this out because, so I'm a big Letterboxd fan. I know you're not on Letterboxd, and I don't know how many of our listeners are, but I, I love Letterboxd, and I love log- going in and logging my uh, my films there. So I went last night to log in. And I try not to read any of the art, you know, opinions or anything like that. Like, I'm not trying to steal people's insights or anything like that. But it was funny that you talked about how it's being sort of genreless because the one comment that I did have, it was like one of my friend's reviews. And it was just simply Michael Hanique said, fuck your genre. <laughs> so the, the couple times you've mentioned that, like, I literally just keep hearing that line in my head. Michael Hanique says, fuck your genre. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. I picked up on that, too. Um, and uh, also mysterious as to my interest level, because I was kind of in and out of this film. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, just because, again, no music to carry it. A lot of, uh, in, you know, impatient silences, uh, pregnant pauses, the whole bit. Um, and so ultimately, I did enjoy the film. I love the way it buttoned itself up at the end or the lack thereof. I love an ambiguous ending like we talked about. Uh, so I think I'm going to be a little more generous with my grade than you may be anticipating. Um, the, le- the next word I would use is a little hyphenated conjunction thing, and that's slow burn. And that kind of ties directly into what I was just saying, which is uh, you just got to stick with this one. And because um, it's methodical, it's not fast paced. You just got to kind of follow along and, and lean into the acting and the emotions and the things that are happening on screen because it is a very slow burn. And um, my last one kind of rolls right off of that as well. And that's still uh, the, no music, uh, very little camera movement. There are, you know, some transitional scenes like you're talking about, but a lot of it is surveillance POV you know, the uh, proscenium view, big wide shots, everything's kind of happening within these boundaries. So, uh, and then, you know, the acting is even still sometimes where you just have people sitting there in silence and you just, that the, the awkward tension that's building in the room because nothing is happening. That can sometimes be more tense than like what you're talking about, where someone's flying off the handle and going full banana pants crazy like Charlton Heston in Soylent Green. So, um, you know, sometimes two people just sitting there in silence is just and because you're there with them, whether you like it or not. And you're like, uh, can I go now? <laughs> and you're like, oh, wait, I'm, I paid to watch this. <laughs> so mysterious, slow burn and still Jason, how about you, buddy? Ah, that's great, dude. So my first one is subtle. I just really liked the uh, subtle approach that the filmmaker took with this film. Doesn't beat you over the head with anything. You've pointed out the lack of a score. The acting was was not showy at all. You know, there's no big dramatic moments, no big giant reveals. Juliette Binoche arguably has one, maybe two scenes that kind of border on that where she does kind of really get into her frustrations with him. But even she's then, one of my celebrity crushes, by the oh, way, yeah, I love me some Julia Binoche, lo- lovely woman, great actress. No reason not to love Julia Binoche. Uh, I honestly, I don't, uh, this, this very well could have been the first film that I've seen her in. I never saw shock a lot, which I believe most people would probably know her from shock a lot. I think she was in an English patient too, if I'm not mistaken. You saw that movie. Um, you saw the English patient. I did. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That is not a film that I would have expected you to see. I have not seen that I mean, movie. I think that was one of those when I worked at Blockbuster and you could take home any movie you wanted. So it was free and it was like, fuck it, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, I think she was. Dude, like, as if you haven't seen some bullshit films streaming just because they were there in front of you and you're really ripped one day and you're like, ah. Let's give this one a whirl. I actually do not stream, <laughs> sir. I am a proud subscriber of old school Red Envelope Netflix. I receive my <sighs> physical media in the mail as I am heating my house by way of wood burning stove. 
<laughs> fucking hipster DVDs. I love it. <laughs> okay, but dude, I'm telling you, you can't imagine how many more films are available on that platform that you cannot get anywhere else and here's no, the thing no, Ryan. here's the thing man if i haven't done it before i live a proactive cinematic lifestyle okay when i want to watch when i'm watching a movie it is because i have decided that it is a film that i want to watch and i have gone out and i have seeked it and i have watched it i'm not sitting here only watching what you're willing to serve me up Netflix or Hulu, which is surprisingly limited when you want to do anything that was released before 2009. Okay. I like old movies oh, and shit. I mean, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, you, you make a strikingly good point in your man bun and mustache. <laughs> sipping your latte. Good, sir. Hold on here. Let me finish oiling my beard. <laughs> uh, yeah no i do not have a beard by the way the only time i have a beard is because it's been two weeks since i've shaved and i'm just lazy uh so but i do have the curly q mustache uh, <laughs> i'm working on a nice wario i'm trying to crinkle cut it i'm gonna call it the crinkle fry the wario crinkle fry anyways so uh yeah subtle i don't know how we got uh <laughs> we're in three adjectives <laughs> that was a three adjectives tangent holy shit that's more of a film yeah, review tangent. it was a good one okay all right it was a good one uh, let's move on to number two skillful and uh like i said i think there was a lot on display where hanique was one step ahead of us as an audience and i mean you know we're pretty sophisticated audiences too i'm not trying to blow smoke up our own ass but like we get films we understand what filmmakers are doing we see things that maybe not the average moviegoer would see and uh, that being said you know he he got a number on uh old jason over here anyway especially with that last scene so and then, yeah, like I said, you know, I've broken down sort of the going from, you know, the wide shot to the individuals utilizing the digital cinematography and having that play into the overall story and the aesthetics. So really skillful film. And then funny thing, Ryan, I had the exact same third adjective as you, but I had a feeling there was a there was a, a case that uh, a scenario where you went with slow burn. So just to hedge my bets, I went with slowly engrossing. Which is, Whoa. yeah, cheating the system. Saying the same <laughs> thing in a different way. Uh, right. So since it's already been said, I don't need to break that one down. But subtle, skillful, and slowly engrossing, giving us that juicy alliteration we always love to have. And juicy. that brings us <laughs> to our formal rating. I do the star ratings. Ryan does the grade ratings. Ryan, give us a formal grade rating for cash. I gave this one a B minus. Nice. Nice. I was, I was interested to see because yeah, I, I honestly did expect you to like this one less than you did because for me, I actually got heavy lives of others vibes from this film. And I mean, from the filmmaking standpoint, yeah, yes, but not the yeah. content. Okay. Yeah, I thought no, the content was way better and way more enjoyable. Dude, those okay. people were just hard to watch. That Lives of Others shit and the writing and the diatribes and everything that was going on. That was rough. This uh, th this was, I mean, this was a completely different thing. You had murder and intrigue and whodunit and uh, back and forth and the rug being pulled out and what am I supposed to be paying attention to? It drew me in. Um, okay, cool. Was it the best version of that? No. Was it solid though? Yeah. Like, you know, and the way it started... Again, with no, no music, the digital shit that we talked about, um, you don't really know what's going on. Everything, you know, you're getting these videotapes and the and the crayon drawings that are they're wrapped in and you're just like, huh. 
But uh, as it went on from the about the second act, you know, in through the third act, uh, I really, again, it's a slow burn. And as you get through a slow burn, it burns hotter. And I really enjoyed these uh, moments. So um, this felt like, so I, I, I was kind of debating on what to give this. And when you're talking about a B minus, you know, you're at that 80, 81%. You know, if you took a test and you weren't sure how you did on it and you get and the teacher comes back and hands it to you, it's like 81%, you're like, okay, I'll take that. I'll accept totally. that. And that's yeah. how this movie left me was like, okay, I'll accept this film. This film is okay. <laughs> it's a B minus film. It passes Ryan's judgment. Right, I have deemed yes. this film worthy. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> awesome, dude. Yeah. So for me, yeah, I, uh, I, I little bit better, uh, uh, higher score than you. Not, not super far off. Uh, four and a quarter out of five stars. Um, and okay, yeah, for me, higher, it was more higher. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of on the B, the high, the B plus range. B plus uh, A minus, minus range. Yeah. 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 So, um, but yeah. And, uh, for all the reasons that we discussed, you know, really, and, and, and again, I would, I, I don't want to watch this film again tomorrow, but I am looking forward to rewatching this film sometime over the next, you know, couple of years or whatever. And, uh, I think that I'm going to be able to use this conversation and a lot of what we've observed and sort of a uh, piece together uh, and see everything that we talked about, you know, uh, while I'm watching it, as opposed to having to reflect on it a second time around. So that has been cash. Ryan, we got some social media accounts and we listeners. Do. If you are not following them, you should be. Uh, first is that we are on the Twitter at Esoterica cinema. And we are also on the Instagram at Esoterica cinema. Both Ryan and myself are on both of those as well. Ryan is at the Ryan Siebold and Ryan underscore Siebold on Instagram. Is that correct? That's correct. On Twitter and Instagram, respectively. Sweet. Finally got it. And for me, I am Jason Aberrant on both. That's one B and two R's. So go ahead and hit us up. As always, we love to hear from you. We've also got the old school email for anybody who's enjoying a nice crepe and wants to let us know about it. You can hit us up, esotericacinema at gmail.com with all of your crepe and crepe-related correspondence. You can also discuss muffins if you want to take it back to season one. Or I was going to ask about- if it was crepe because we just watched a French film and that's the French muffin, maybe. So, uh, you know. so it's kind of a French pancake, really. I don't know. I think I guess that would be croissant. I don't know that there is yeah, a French muffin. Yeah. I mean, I know yeah. cupcakes are big over there, but we, we've yeah. we've you know discussed the uh, cupcake versus muffin differential here before. We have. So. We have. Either way, if you're out there and you're French, let us know your opinions. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, email at uh, was it esoterica at e- gmail it's it, you know what cinema? go figure. I was gonna say it's a tricky one. It's esotericacinema at gmail dot com. There it and, is. Uh, and yeah. then we've also got the website. So you go there. You go to esotericacinema dot com. Esotericacinema dot com. Brought to you by Sports Center. Uh, and then we've got a bunch of uh, cool stuff for you to check out there. So we've got the web player. We've got links to our awesome animatic for Flippers Gentlemen's Club. That one's always fun. And uh, the trailer. And, of course, our master list, our season two master list from which we choose all of our films. It's a beautiful list, and we're looking for you guys not only to play along at home when we pull the films here at the end of the episode, but also, you know, these films are all coming off for season three, and we're going to need some new movies to replace those with. So, again, hit us up at any of the forums that we just mentioned, and feel free to suggest some films that you would like for us to put on next season's master list, and who knows, maybe we'll pull it, and we'll get to discuss that film that you love so much, and hopefully bring it to some people's attention. 
So, yeah. Oh, other thing, too. Uh, if you're listening and you haven't, uh, please do give us the old uh, subscribe or follow. And also do leave us a review on Apple or Podchaser or wherever you leave your reviews. It does help us. We really appreciate it. Those subs help us get our numbers up as well, so we appreciate that. And, of course, we appreciate you listening. At the end of the day, sub, like, whatever. But if you're listening to us right now, we appreciate you. Everything else is just gravy. So thanks a lot. We've got some really awesome numbers that we're looking forward to uh, continuing to increase this uh, season. And uh, with that being said, Ryan, I believe it's time to go ahead and pull our next film. Absolutely. Let's see how my week's going to go. <laughs> All right. So the first thing we got to do, we got to go to our random.org true number generator. I hope they become our first sponsor. I hope random. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that they make any money, dude. I literally, they don't sell a single thing on this site. <laughs> I mean, like, this is just some, like, this is just some bored programmer, right? Like, he's, like, on staff on Microsoft. He's one of a billion. They And he just sits there and he's like, ah, fuck that. I, my true passion is in random number generation. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, so we've got 200 films. We're going to go ahead and we're going to pull it up. So anybody playing at home, you should know that we just pulled number 134. So we're going to give those people that have printed out their list or have it on their phones a minute to check it out. Number 134. Ryan... This is going to be an interesting one. I think this is literally the only type of this film that we have on this list. I think that most people are probably familiar with this, not because of the movie itself, but because of esteemed hip-hop supergroup, the Wu-Tang Clan. That's right. We are watching the 36th Chamber of Shaolin. Oh, sweet. I'm really <laughs> excited for this. Yeah, I mean, all of our other samurai films are like Harakiri and Kurosawa films where they're more like meditations on life and honor. And like, I think this is just a balls to the wall samurai film. I'm in. You got a description for us? I do. From 1979, Google has this listed as Young Student Liu is urged to rise against the Manchu oppression in China, but the revolution has disastrous consequences. Escaping from the massacre, Liu seeks shelter in the Shaolin Temple, where the monks train him in their famous martial arts skills. Excellent, man. Yeah, so uh, that's going to be a fun one. Like I said, don't really have a ton of these, uh, you know, just kind of old school samurai films on here. So uh, very glad we got to pull this one. Keep it keep it fresh, keep it interesting. And yeah, I don't know about you, Ryan, but I'm expecting this one to be a little different from Harakiri that we watched the other day. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Or Grave of the Fireflies, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So everybody, thanks so much for joining us here for another episode of Esoterica Cinema. We will be back next week. In the meantime, enjoy a fake commercial. Intruso whole home convenience and security. How may I improve your well-being? Help! Someone's trying to break into my property! I'm with the gas company. I just need to read the meter. Please, come quick. He smells like an immigrant. I've told you three times. I'm from San Diego. Don't worry, ma'am. Intruso is on the way. When it comes to protecting your interests, nobody does it better than Intruso. I thought about using Ring but they only put a single camera outside your front door. What happens once the burglars are in my home? With Intruso's Deluxe Package, 
will install cameras along both the outside and inside perimeters of your house, ensuring every square inch is observable by our team of experienced professionals. Honey, have you seen the blue cheese dressing? Uh, hello? This is Intruso, how may I improve your well-being? I'm good, actually, I was just looking for salad dressing. Yes, the blue cheese, we heard. It's on the third shelf behind the kale and the leftover beef wellington. Uh, this is kind of intrusive. Thank you, sir. We try hard to live up to our namesake. Intruso isn't just a name, it's a way of life. As a Fortune 500 company, we're committed to being all up in your shit at all times. I don't know. I feel like the passion is gone from our lives. Jim, what happened? We used to be so compatible. Oh, come on now. Hello? This is Intruso. How may I improve your well-being? Okay, now seriously, this is this is way too much, okay? Uh, my wife and I are having a private conversation. Yes, we heard. Betty is feeling neglected because you don't reciprocate oral sex. Oh, come on! No, Jim. Intruso's right. Intruso's always right. Really? Really. We'll all be. Thanks, Intruso. Just doing our job, sir. Intruso. We get up in your shit. <laughs>